May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our text this morning is the epistle, Romans chapter 6, written by the Apostle Paul from Corinth to the church at Rome. Whenever the gospel of grace is preached vigorously, as it is here at the Advent, there is a danger that someone might think that good works no longer matter that we can sin freely without consequence. That's the issue that the Apostle Paul is addressing here in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In chapter 5 of Romans, and the 5 o'clock service is going through Romans. And I preached on Romans 5 last week in the Sunday evening service. Paul beautifully expresses the gifts that we have because of our justification by faith through grace in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says we have peace with God. He says we stand in the grace we exist in the realm, in the atmosphere of God's grace. We rejoice in the hope of his glory. We even rejoice in our sufferings because we're participating in the sufferings of Christ. He outlines these gifts, the gifts of God for the people of God. And he establishes that grace, and now he talks about sin. We have this expression in theology, prevenient grace. It's the grace that goes before. It's the grace that we have in order to recognize sin, in order to repent of sin, in order to confess sin. The grace that is received as such a blessing and a gift precisely because of our sin and our estrangement from God. God's grace not only forgives sin, but delivers from sinning. What does it mean to be dead to sin? How can we who have died to sin still live in it? And Paul's emphatic answer is, no, you can't. But the proof of conversion is a converted life. When Paul said we are dead to sin, he meant that we are dead to the reign and to the dominion of sin. We are dead to the guilt of sin because Christ has forgiven us. We are dead to the shame of sin because God looks upon us and sees his son's righteousness, not our sins. We are dead to the fear of sin because of the victory of Christ. And what ratifies this is baptism. It is the sign that the Father has designated the Son to receive our sins. And in baptism, we die to that sinful life and are raised in the newness of life, in the life of grace. We have been baptized into death. We have been raised into life. 
There is a personal and vital identification with Jesus Christ in his cross and in his resurrection. Now, when Paul said we are dead to sin, he didn't mean that we are insensitive to sin or that we are indifferent to sin or that we're apathetic about sin. C.S. Lewis argued that it, is, that it was the indispensable to the real understanding of the Christian faith for all believers to detect the real, inexcusable corruption more and more in its complex disguises. Lewis said when people are getting better, they understand more and more how sinful they are. When they're getting worse, they understand less. When we lived in Bloomington, Indiana, we lived on a property that was built on an old farm, a subdivision on an old farm. And the chain length fence that the previous owners had put in was about 10 feet beyond where the growth and the forest and, uh, and everything was. So the chain length fence is outside of that area and inside's 10 feet of basically wilderness that's never been touched. And I needed to clear it out for our three young kids in order to play in the backyard. And I discovered the old farm's barbed wire fence in that scrub, in those trees, in that underbrush. And I thought, well, this'll be a Saturday. I'll cut out the barbed wire and remove it so the kids can play back here. Well, it took me many Saturdays. The barbed wire had, the trees and the shrubs had grown up into that barbed wire. The barbed wire was embedded in the trees. It's, it's a typical accident in Indiana where people are chainsawing a tree and they run into the old barbed wire that had been there from the farm. It took me a long time, but that barbed wire in all those trees and shrubs, intractable it seemed, is a picture for me of the evil in my life in our lives, in our society, deeply embedded, wrapped around the way we work, how we think about ourselves, how we use money, how we relate sexually, how we act toward our enemies, that life grows up and around and gets intertwined. Makes me think of the passage, you know, in Hebrews that says that we're to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run the race that's been marked out for us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. J.D. Vance has written a really good book. It's not a Christian book. It's a book, though, that analyzes the Appalachian culture and its impact on rural Americans growing up in a culture that has bad public schools, that has racism and sexism and folk religion and patterns of deception and manipulation and resentment and broken families and physical and sexual abuse and coarse and vulgar language and fierce family loyalty and unhealthy eating habits, et cetera, et cetera. He grew up in that culture. And he didn't really, even though he had the love of his grandparents, and an exceedingly addicted mother, it wasn't until he went into the Marines that his life began to take new shape. And he said the Marines assumed maximum ignorance 
on the part of the enlisted man or woman. Maximum ignorance. They remake you. They break you down to nothing and then build you back up. They teach you how to use a bank account. They teach you to go flat out. They teach you that you can do way more than you think you can. And I, as I was reading that, was thinking, oh, it's really the gospel, it's Christ, it's the church. Christ assumes in us maximum ignorance. We don't know how to live life in grace. And we really do need to be built from the ground up by his grace. Christ, not the Marines, gives life the followers of Jesus Christ their identity and purpose. And Christ really does mean to break the old patterns. Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. But how difficult it is, isn't it, to detect the complex disguises of sin. The Danish Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard suggested that becoming aware of our sin is like seeing our own eyeball. And we always tend to grade ourselves on a curve. We're like in that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We're like the Pharisee being able to look down on other people. We excuse ourselves by judging others. You forget that John Newton became a captain of a slave ship years before he wrote Amazing Grace, captain of a slave ship after his conversion. He was spending two hours a day in personal devotions, insisted his crew go to church while he was captain of a ship sailing to Charleston with 260 slaves, 60 of whom died en route. All the while, being a sincere believer. Slavery was acceptable to him the way abortion is acceptable today. It wasn't until 1788, 16 years after writing Amazing Grace, that with the help of his friend William Wilberforce, he came to the conclusion that slavery was iniquitous, cruel, destructive, disgraceful, unlawful, and wrong. We suffer from a kind of theoretical niceness. Lane and Gilt wrote a book entitled Shantung Compound about the internment of uh, foreigners under the Japanese, 1944. He said that the usual calorie intake in the prison camp was 1,200 calories a day, and then 1,500 three foot by one foot parcels from the American Red Cross arrived. 1,500 for 1,450 internees. And then seven Americans, they were from the American Red Cross, seven Americans argued that the commandant did not have the authority to distribute these parcels to everyone in the camp, but only to the Americans. He said, for months, it had made no difference whether you were American, British, or French, no difference whether you were white or black. But all of a sudden, because seven Americans got it in their mind that these packages all belonged to them, 
And if they felt like distributing it, then it would be their charitable, moral goodwill to do so. Well, the commandant never being faced by this and from a more communal uh, context himself would never realized that somebody would make this kind of individualistic, nationalistic uh, decision. He sent to Tokyo for its wisdom on how to distribute the 1,500 packages. And those packages in a half-starving camp sat there at the center of the camp for 10 days while waiting word from Tokyo on how to distribute them. And in the end, Tokyo gave all of each person one parcel and then sent 50 away to another camp. So they ended up with less. But Gilkey takes you in his book, Com uh, Shanktown Compound, he takes you through the moral reasoning of even missionaries. That it was their right to decide how those would be distributed. We have a kind of selective morality, don't we? A theoretical niceness, a, a kind of self-serving bias built into us that's so hard to deal with. I don't know if you remember, but Cameron Cole in one of the Lenten sermons referred to contacting campus ministers on behalf of our students that go as freshmen to colleges and universities and and Cameron told about one campus minister whom he contacted and kept contacting because he didn't get a word back. And finally, they, uh, he called him about this particular student that he was just trying to give a heads up to, to get into uh, his ministry. And the student, he's, the campus minister said, you know, I'm reluctant to tell you this, but the student said, I have no intention of seeking God for the next four years or anything about God. We are no longer under the reign of sin, but the reign of grace. And life now has been made new. And we certainly can't write off the sins of our particular age, whether we're young or middle-aged or older. Paul gives this prayer in Philippians. This is my prayer for you, he says, May your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you would discern what is best and be filled with the fruit of righteousness until the day of Christ Jesus. When Virginia and I lived in a one-bedroom apartment in Toronto, I was a grad student and she was teaching violin. I am a very light sleeper and I'd get up and go out to the kitchen to get a drink and scurrying along from the floor would be a cockroach and I'd kill it. And being a person of habit, I was getting up every night around 3 a.m. and killing a couple cockroaches. And I thought, well, you know, this is kind of ridiculous for a grad student to be doing this at 3 a.m. And so I said, we got to get to the bottom of this. We got to find where all these cockroaches are coming from. And I got up on a, a kitchen chair and looked at the small crack between the cabinets and the wall and it was literally hundreds of cockroaches. Well, you know, we had to empty everything out of the kitchen, call in an exterminator, wash everything. But that kind of could be my view of sin. I'm, I'm going to stomp out a few. 
But I'm really not going to deal with the kind of systemic sin, constant sin. Paul says, so you also must consider yourself. You also must consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I want to know Christ. I know you want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his suffering. I know you want to say with me, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I know you, along with me, want to put on that full armor of God so that we can withstand the schemes of the devil. We do not live under the reign of sin. We live under the reign of grace. To God be the glory in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.